They were hugely outnumbered, out-resourced, out-skilled, and defeat seemed inevitable. And uh, the leaders never made a decision without first consulting their religious oracle. The oracle was a woman who possessed great insight, wisdom, ability to see into the heavenly realms to decide what God wanted. And so upon hearing about the invasion, she spent an entire day in deep meditation and prayer. And the oracle um, come up to, came up to the leaders and said, I, I, I bring you sad news. I've been told that God himself has joined our enemies and has put all of his power at their disposal. And the ominous message kind of sent fear and trembling throughout the entire island. And in response, one proclaimed that we must surrender and pray that they'll have mercy on us. Another said, no, let's, let's get a bunch of ships and then let's abandon this island and leave it for them. But the chief, a strong man with deep faith, remained calm throughout the debate. And at the end of the discussion, he calmly said, please trust me, I know what we t- need to do in, to ensure our safety and well-being in this dark hour. And the chief was well-respected by everyone. And in the absence of another plan, they all reluctantly agreed. And so that day, he called together all the men of the city who could perhaps fight. And at first, he dismissed every boy under the age of 18. And then if there was someone who was married for less than a year, they dismissed him as well. And at the end of the day, they had very few fighting men. It paled in comparison to the vast resources and army that was going to assail them. And these brave men fought, and they fought hard, and many lives were lost on this battle. But to everyone's surprise, at the end of the day, the evil dictator was turned away, and his forces left, retreating. And the entire island was dumbstruck. They heard about how the enemy had run in fear back to their homeland. And the oracle was, was, was more confused than anyone, for she knew something that rarely anybody knew. She knew that God was going to fight for the other side. And so... She approached the chief and she said, how did you know to fight when the odds were impossibly high and when you knew that God himself was pitted against you? But the chief merely smiled and replied, surely you know that it does not matter which side God is on. When when God is involved, the oppressed always win. Now this story is a fable. It's not found in the Bible, but there is a deep truth in it. God has a particular heart and a particular presence among the lowly, among the suffering, among the poor, and among the hurting in our world. So should we. Our sixth and final core value is this. God's heart is for those who are suffering, poor, downtrodden, lonely, sick, abandoned, depressed, and our heart should be that as well. We aren't going to be a church that runs from those who are suffering. We will be a church that runs to those who are suffering. If there's a need, we want to meet it. This is justice. Justice is making the wrongs of the world right. This is bringing heaven to earth. And this vision of biblical justice doesn't just start with Jesus in the New Testament, but rather it's seen throughout the biblical narrative. And uh, the Hebrew word for justice is is the word mishpat, mishpat. And it means justice, right, or rectitude. Making the wrongs in our world right. This is the call for us as followers of Jesus. There's this amazing passage of scripture in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is speaking to this king. Uh, The new king's name is Shalom. And Shalom wasn't a great king, but his father Josiah was. 
And this is a big deal to God. And the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and he says this in verse 13. Woe to him who built his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice. God is concerned about injustice. Making his own people work for nothing, not paying them their fair labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. Verse 16, this is unbelievable. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. This concept of justice and knowing God is so inextricably linked within the scriptures that a legitimate question can be asked. Could practicing justice be the equivalent to knowing God? Verse 16, he defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? As a youth pastor, one thing I've had to do on a regular basis was, and I still have to do this, is write letters of recommendations for people. Um, And I've got kind of on my computer a couple different letters that are just kind of like stock letters. And it's for the students and the people that I know really well. And then I've got some that are like, I don't know them that well, but I still want them to get whatever job this is, okay? And so um, uh, I had this student in my student ministries. And I asked him if I could tell these stories. And he said it was okay. I was surprised that he let me. His name was Burke. And Burke, uh, Burke always took things too far. Okay, when, I, when we would try and film a promotional video for our church, like for our youth group, and we're like, guys, this is, a, this is a little music video that we're going to use to promote the trip. And I go, okay, guys, no pelvic thrusting. <laughs> and then the, I was like, this is a church video, guys. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally, totally, totally. And then as I'm editing the film later, I can see Burke in the background moving his hips in a very inappropriate motion. And I was like, I got to edit this all over again. I was so bummed. Now, uh... Burke went to Malawi, Africa with us in 2006. Here's a picture. I I don't know if you guys know which one's him. It's like a Where's Waldo. Um, (laughs) This guy graduated uh, from uh, UOP grad school in the pharmacy world. Uh, Now he works in the medical field as a pharmacist. This guy guy gives you your pills, okay? Uh, (laughs) I had to write those letters of recommendations for him. And Burke's a good guy, but I'm not going to be super honest, right? Like, I'm not going to say, dear University of Pacific School of Pharmacy, Burke is a great candidate. I've known him for eight years. He does, however, tend to move his hips in an inappropriate fashion in church videos. (laughs) Sincerely, John Richardson. (laughs) Letters of recommendation. One scholar said that no one is getting into the kingdom without a letter of recommendation from the poor. This is a big deal to the Lord, and it should be a big deal to us. We see God's heart for the poor in the prophets, like we see in Jeremiah. We also can see it in the law, in Leviticus, written 700 years before that. Check this out, Leviticus 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner, It's a fitting fitting topic today. 
And for the foreigner residing among you, I am the Lord your God. Now, real quick, this passage should not be taken literally. Here's a pastor from the stage telling you this passage should not be taken literally. Um, if you're a farmer, the Bible's not commanding you to harvest just the edge, to not harvest the edge of, of your crops. Otherwise, you are sinning. The passage shouldn't be taken literally. However, it should be taken seriously. What is the embedded principle within this precept? Well, in the ancient world, when Leviticus was written, the poor, the foreigners, gravitated in the countryside so where they could get free food, fall off the crops, and they can also avoid the unsanitation and the dangers of city life. Now, where do the poor typically gravitate 3,500 years later? Not in the countryside, but rather into the city, into the urban centers. Uh, so to an agricultural society like Israel, by not gleaning every piece of fruit and not gleaning the edges, you're blessing your neighbor. You're helping the poor. When we read this passage of Scripture, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'm not a farmer, so it doesn't really apply to me. No. What God is saying way back in Leviticus is not don't reap the edges of your harvest. What God is saying is take care of the poor. Help those who are in need. Bless those that are in need. The Bible never says God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Sounds like Bible. It's just not. But what is in the Bible over and over again is God's heart for the lowly, the poor, the suffering, and the oppressed in our world. It has been said that many, many years ago, there lived a, a young, beautiful, gifted woman named Sophia. And Sophia received a vision from God that, that she was going to translate and distribute the word of God in her own language. See, the printing press had just been invented and there was... Uh, they weren't readily available. Most of the Bibles were kept under lock and key in their churches. But she had this vision from God, this dream that she held on to. So she sold everything she had. She knew that she was going to, this was going to take a long time. She was going to have to raise the money for the printing press, hire scholars to be able to translate the Bible from Latin into her native tongue, and then spend the money to be able to distribute. Now, it was going to cost a lot. However, the impossibility of the task, it did not sway her. Having received her vision, she sold everything to make this happen. But it took a toll on her. She began to live on the streets and to love other people and to raise the money. And slowly but surely, the money came in. Shortly before the plans for the printing press could be set in motion, 15 years after her initial vision, there was a devastating flood in a nearby town, destroying people's homes, neighborhoods. And when the news reached Sophia, she gathered up all the money she had raised and spent it on food for the hungry, help to rebuild homes for the, those who are dispossessed, and basic provisions for those who are suffering. And eventually, the town began to recover, and uh, she began to go back at it to the dream, the dream God placed in her heart to translate and distribute the word of God to her people. Many more years passed. Those years on the streets took a heavy toll on the beautiful Sophia. But they were now many who uh, were touched and moved by Sophia's love and devotion that the money began to accumulate once again. 
But after nine more years, disaster struck again. This time a plague dis descended upon her own city, stealing lives of thousands and leaving many children without family or support. By now, Sophia was tired and ill, yet without hesitation, she used the money that had been collected to buy medicines for the sick, homes for the orphans, and land where the dead could be buried safely. Only when the shadow of the plague lifted did she once again set about the dream that God had placed in her heart. And finally, shortly before death, Sophia was able to gather together enough money for the printing press to hire the scholars to distribute the Bible to her land. It is said to this day that Sophia did the task of translating and distributing God's word to her people, not once, but three times. The first two, even more beautiful and radiant than the last. There is this message within the scriptures that has the power to transform us and others if we live that way. It's not about knowing it. It's not about reading it. It's not even about believing it. It's about living it. I've been reading the Bible for 22 years. And for way too many of those years, I don't know how I missed over 2,000 verses on God's heart for the poor. Missed them. Didn't read them. Read them through a different lens. Over 2,000 verses. It talks a whole lot more about money and helping the poor than it does about gay marriage, premarital sex, lying, murder. God has an amazing heart for the lowly and the people in need in our world, and he wants us to make it. We're his plan. We're his plan to help. And Jesus shows us God's heart for those in need as well. Matthew 25, look at this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or a sick person in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Noticed that these goats are not condemned for the sins that they did or for the actions that they did. They were condemned for what they did not do. It wasn't for their sins of commission. It was for their sins of omission. For all the Christians that proclaim God's judgment on people for doing all the wrong things, could God be sitting in the seat of judgment against them for them not loving their neighbor. Let's get really practical. As followers of Jesus, we must develop a conditioned reflex to respond to people's needs around us. A conditioned reflex is a lot like a natural reflex. We all know what a natural reflex is, right? If you put your hand on a stove, it's a natural response for us to remove it, okay? We don't have to learn that. That's something that's just innate to us as humans. A conditioned reflex is similar, but it's something that you have to learn. For example, I'm driving in my car, and I pull up in, 
and it turns yellow, then red, I immediately go to the brake. Red means stop. That's not something I, I, I was born with, right? My four-year-old son, when he sees a red light, he doesn't try and pull the e-brake, okay? It doesn't mean it's a conditioned response. This is learned, but eventually it becomes instinct. So we have to develop a conditioned reflex when someone is hurting, when someone is struggling, when someone is alone, we must develop a conditioned response so that in that moment, we do something to help the need. And it's hard. It's going to take some work. It's never convenient. But eventually, you'll stop at red lights. Eventually, it will become natural that we see a need and we go to it. We see someone hurting, suffering, and we just do something. Something is so much better than nothing. Someone in your office, maybe they're an outcast. Befriend them. Someone in your circle of friends is going through a tough breakup. Reach out to them. Someone in your neighborhood's home got broken into. Do a yard sale and give them the profits. Is there someone that's hurting in your life? Would they be blessed by a place like this? Maybe invite them next week. There was a mouse on a farm. I want to paint this picture for you. And the mouse is looking into the kitchen, and he sees that uh, the farmer comes home, and he pulls out this massive mousetrap, and he's terrified. He's so scared. So he runs out into the farmyard, and he runs to Mr. Chicken. He says, Mr. Chicken, Mr. Chicken, there's a mousetrap. The farmer has a mousetrap, and the chicken says, cluck, cluck, man. That's your problem. It ain't mine. So then he runs to the pig, and he goes, Mr. Pig, Mr. Pig, there's a mouse trap in the house. And Mr. Pig says, oink, oink, buddy, but that's your deal. It ain't mine. The mouse then runs to Mr. Cow. He says, Mr. Cow, there's no other person that can help me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, please, Mr. Cow, please, Mr. Cow, can you help me? Mr. Cow says, no, that's not my problem. That's yours. And that night, when it was all quiet among the farm, you heard the snap, the snap of a mousetrap catching its prey. Uh, the farmer's, ma, farmer's wife walks up to the trap and reaches in while it's still dark, but it was not a mouse caught in the trap. Rather, it was a venomous snake, which bit the farmer's wife, and she got very sick. And the next morning, the farmer discovered this, and and everyone knows that when you're sick, the best cure is chicken noodle soup. So the farmer goes out into the farmyard, butchers the chicken, makes some soup for his wife. Unfortunately, the wife didn't get better. She seemed to be getting worse. And so friends and family come to, to comfort her and to be with her. And so he had to butcher the pig to feed everybody. And unfortunately, she got more sick and more sick. And then they had a funeral. And they had to slaughter the cow so they could feed all of their guests. The next time you hear that someone is facing a problem and you think that it doesn't concern you, remember that when the least of us is threatened, we're all at risk. We must act. We must serve. We must forgive. We must love. That's our call as followers of Jesus. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band up. And I'll close with this story. 
well-known author, theologian, pastor, Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo speaks often all over the world, and he finds himself in this inner city speaking one night, and he gets a little bit of insomnia because he's on the other side of the, uh, the country. He's not used to this, so he finds an all-night open diner. So he walks into the diner at 3 a.m., and he takes a seat, and uh, he hears a conversation behind him. Turns out that this diner was the place where all of the prostitutes would come after a night of turning tricks and uh, get a cup of coffee, share stories. So these two women are sitting behind him as he's sitting by himself in this diner. Then he overheard the conversation. One of them, the name was Agnes. Agnes says to her friend, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. And her friend snapped back, what do you want from me? A birthday party or something? You want me to get a cake and sing birth happy birthday to you? And Agnes replied, oh, come on, you don't got to be mean. I'm just saying it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, no one's ever thrown a birthday party for me in my life. I'm not expecting one at 39. Prominent author and teacher, Tony Campolo, when they left, he got an idea. He asked the shop owner that if Agnes came in every night, and he said that she did, and then he planned a surprise birthday party conspiracy. He and the owner got balloons, they got the owner's wife in on it, and they bought a cake and balloons and told all the staff, and when Agnes walked in the next night at 3 a.m. after turning a night of tricks, they all yelled, surprise, happy birthday. She cried immediately. They began to sing and blow out the candles. And before they cut the cake, she said, could I take it home? Uh, I've never had a birthday cake before. And she walked out of that restaurant that night as if it was a trophy. The owner, uh, then and Tony, gather everyone together and they say a prayer for Agnes. And the owner says, I didn't know you were a preacher. And Tony said, yeah. And he goes, what kind of church do you go to? And Tony said, I go to the kind of church that throws surprise birthday par parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. And the owner said, no, you don't. That church doesn't exist, because if it did, I'd go to one. I want to be the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night. I want to be a part of a church Come one, come all. No judgment. Come as you are. You belong before you believe. It's okay to not be okay. That's the kind of place I want to create. We all got our stuff, right? We all got our stuff. Every one of us has been in those suffering moments. And God says, come. Come in. You're welcome. I love you. Be embraced. Be changed. Let's pray. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us alleviate suffering, speak out against injustice, shine your light in dark places, show love where there's hate, bring peace where there's violence and discord. God, let us be your voice to the weak, to the lowly, to the suffering, to those in need in our world. And for many of you in this place, you find yourself not as one who needs to help those who are suffering, but as those who are suffering. 
And you're asking, why, God? Help me, God. I've been asking and asking and asking, and you're nowhere to be found. And God says, I'm here now. So God, I pray that for those in this place who are going through some stuff, and they've been going through some stuff for a long time, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that, w- that they would be able to be embraced, loved, welcomed, and comforted. God, I pray that we would do something, that we would be people who do something rather than nothing. And so God, be close to us. Be close to them, especially those in need. We need you, God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and look to Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith, and proclaim that he's Lord even in the midst of our suffering.